So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And then the next verse, when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. Father, this morning we thank you for magistrates who are confused. (laughs) We thank you for, Lord, authorities that don't know what to do with us. I pray, Father, we can be the kind of people that throws the world into confusion because they don't understand and they don't, they don't get it. The Lord, help us to help them get it. Help us to be the kind of people we need to be this morning, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been here 28 years and watched a lot of Oktoberfests. I don't know that I've ever seen one as crowded as this weekend, closing off streets that they don't normally close off and parking, people parking, you know, several blocks away and so forth. Maneuvering around town is very challenging. I was, um, I was in, uh, Jack's on, uh, Friday night, uh, making a midnight snack run for Lori and me. <laughs> Not a midnight, about 1030 or so. But that's midnight for old people. <laughs> anyway, so we went to, I went to Jex and uh, it was very crowded in Jex as well. There was a very long line and I started looking around at the people and I thought there's a lot of people here that aren't from these parts. And I ran into a young lady who I've known since she was 11 years old. She grew up in this church and uh, we were standing in line side by side. We were chatting as we were waiting on the long line and she kind of nodded her head towards the front of the line, wanted me to look that way, and I looked that way, and she said, um, she, she said, look at those hipsters up there. And um, I said, it's funny that you should say that. I said, because I was just talking about culture, subcultures in our church the other day, and I wanted to say something about hipsters, but I couldn't remember the, the name. All I could remember was the old preppy, you know, title, but, uh, and, I, and I said, I know that's an old term, although there are still preppies uh, I found out as I looked that up later. And she said, yeah. And she said, now there's, there's a group called Crunchies. I said, Crunchies? And she said, yeah. I said, I've never heard of Crunchies. So of course I went home and I looked it up. And uh, it's interesting because there, it turns out there's 110 subcultures according to Wikipedia. Uh, mo- you know, most of 90% of them I'd never heard of before, and they have really bizarre and strange names. So I looked up on another website, and I found out the top 10 subcultures that we would, most of us would be familiar with these. Hippie, yippie, hipster, preppy, yuppie, yupster, grup, I don't know about that one, G-R-U-P, grup, yendi, and then geeks and nerds. And let's not forget the new one, Crunchy. Okay, Look it up, Urban uh, Dictionary. You can find Crunchy there. You can learn all about Crunchies. But um, anyway, so there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of subcultures out there. And uh, when, when these subcultures first come on the scene, they are considered counterculture. We talked about that in the last few weeks. Uh, but many, eventually, it's kind of funny because 
when I look at preppies, which I never was one, I was too old for one thing to be a preppy, although when I look at the at the preppy fashion, it's stuff we all buy today, but back in its day, that was a bit of a subculture. And the same with, with hipsters, the thing begins to catch on, and there's no longer counterculture anymore. It becomes part of the mainstream. So that's kind of interesting to me. And I just finished a five-week series talking about culture and don't worry I'm not going to I'm not continuing that but it's interesting to me that as I began to think about this and as that as that was uh stirring up in my mind again late Friday night uh I was thinking about the introduction to this message that I was going to preach this morning and I couldn't help but rethink this whole counterculture thing because in the Bible if there ever was a counterculture lived out and was impactful on the world, it was the believers in the book of Acts. I mean, what a counterculture. These, these believers that lived in the book of Acts was so, such a counterculture that it impacted their world. Thus the two verses that we read this morning. Jesus said they went out and the power of God was with them and confirmed things through signs. And here it's saying in the book of Acts that uh, these people were afraid because uh, they're throwing our towns into confusion and so forth. And so there was a there was this counterculture uh, of believers in the book of Acts that were changing their world. And it doesn't take a lot of theological background to read the book of Acts and to notice that there's a marked difference between the believers in the book of Acts and, let's say, us the believers today. They're miles apart. They're worlds apart. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with that? When you read the book of Acts, you'd say, oh, that doesn't sound like Christians I know. Well, it doesn't sound like me either. And so the, the, the believers in the book of Acts versus the believers today are worlds apart. And when you read the actual stories and what they said and what they did, but, but, but even Sometimes more importantly, what their critics were saying about them, such as this, these men are, uh, no, not that one. Don't go there yet. These men are throwing our city into confusion. When you read about what the critics were saying, it tells you something about the impact that they were having on cities and regions and ultimately the whole world. Uh, they, the, the world was taking notice of the believers, unlike the small, insignificant whisper that we are over in some corner, you know. Instead, often there there would be fear and dread from the authorities when the believers would make their way into the cities, as as now we can go to the next verse. In in what such instance there was this fear and dread on the magistrates, on the authorities of the city. And they said when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shout, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. You can almost hear the dread and the fear and the panic in the voice of this one that's speaking. We're, we're, they're coming to our city. We're what do we do? You know, they're turning the world upside down. Now they're coming here. What do we do about these believers? But the church of today, eh, you know, how are we seen by the world? How are we seen by our critics? You don't have to think very hard. You can just read your newspapers or watch the media how Christians are viewed by their, our critics. 
We're a nuisance. We're a target of ridicule. We are sometimes a source of hatred. We don't have the same kind of, we, we don't seem to have a voice. We don't seem to have a standing in the world. And sometimes we even go unnoticed. There's a famous quote from a, an unknown Anglican priest. I remember reading it when I was you know, maybe 30 years ago. I remember reading this 30 years ago, and I never forgot it. I, I heard this in my younger days. There was an Anglican priest that's simply being honest. And this is what he said. He said, you know, wherever the Apostle Paul went, there, were either, there was either a revival or a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. He's, he's being honest. He's saying, look... I get it. You know, I go and we're congenial with each other and everything's okay. And, you know, I don't cross the lines and they don't cross the lines and we serve tea. And wherever Paul went, there was a revival or a riot. Around 1939, a man named Watchman Nee gave some lectures called The Normal Christian Life, which ultimately turned into a book that I remember reading in my teens. I wasn't a teen in 1939, and it came out much later. <laughs> but I remember reading that book in my teens, The Normal Christian Life. And the book challenges us with this. The whole concept of the book was this, asking us as Christians, what is the normal Christian life? What should, what does the normal, what should the normal Christian life look like? Can we say, now let's be honest for a moment and listen to this question, examine yourselves, can we say that the average Christian today is what God expected when he inaugurated the church 2,000 years ago? What did God have in mind when he first instituted the church? What kind of Christian was he expecting to unleash on the world? And could we say, we're it? I'm being honest, and I don't think I'm it. When I, especially when I compare with compare myself with the way the believers were in the book of Acts. Is the church of Acts more in keeping with what God had in mind? I think so. Some of you may, may have heard of uh, Leonard Ravenhill. He was well-known decades ago. Um, he was a man born in, uh, in Yorkshire, England, I got to actually hear him preach uh, live. He died in 1994 at 82 years old, but uh, I remember hearing him preach. Uh, he was a man that was very well respected, but he didn't pull any punches, and he he had strong messages. And and one of in his and by the way, he died like I said about 12 years ago, and he's buried. And he actually ended up uh, living in the United States, actually in Texas near Lindell, Texas. He's he's buried in uh, Garden Valley, Texas. But it's very worth your while, by the way. Leonard Ravenhill was a very powerful man and very eloquent, great quotes. Google Leonard Ravenhill quotes, and any one of them are worth putting on a, on a wall. Leonard Ravenhill was a, a great, great godly man. But his greatest passion was to challenge Western Christianity to be more like the New Testament church. And I can rem- remember hearing this quote, Back in my teens, Christianity today is so subnormal that if we began to act like a normal New Testament Christian, we'd be considered abnormal. Sometimes you have to think about those kind of statements, but I get it. 
We're so subnormal. What God intended, we're so below that. We're so subnormal that if we ever bumped ourselves up to what God, what the New Testament church would be considered a weirdo, abnormal, right? Let's talk about the New Testament church for a minute. What started out as a very small sect in the early chapters of Acts began to grow, and it was very slow at first. Subcultures do that. Subcultures don't take off immediately. There's a handful of people that begin the subculture, and and uh, eventually it begins to grow and spread, but it takes time. And, you know, when we read the book of Acts or when we read any book of the Bible, sometimes we forget that sometimes between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there may be 8, ten, eight or 10 years or, you know, or as, and as in the case of Genesis, I often tell people you don't realize that between chapters this and this, it's 1,100 years. So sometimes we forget that. But, but chronologically, the, the church, the, this, this sect, this subculture, it took them eight years, eight long years to reach just 30 miles away in Samaria. That'd be like Johnson City, taking eight years for, for the subculture of Christianity to reach 30 miles away. Eight years. It took seven more years before word starting started getting around in Asia Minor about this about this group this growing group and man after that it took off after that it just 500,000 converts in the first 3 centuries you know and but it but it began very very slow at first and they began to hear it began to be on the radar in Asia Minor and people started taking notice of them and they started getting nervous about this this group called the Christians they were first called Christians in Antioch a town in Syria and these people were beginning to upset the social norms that people were used to they began to rattle cages people began to be fearful of these of these Christians especially uh, authorities people weren't used to their to their normal being challenged for them the world was being turned upside down and you've heard me say before that actually it was being turned right side up but but resurrection life was being proclaimed and as a result of that people's people's lives were being they were getting, as use a modern term, weirded out. They were, they were getting, we don't get this. We don't understand this. I, I love this morning because I, I don't often do this, but I get to quote some of my, my longtime favorite, uh, authors and, and pastors and, and, and so forth. Jack Hayford, uh, 40 years ago, I read a book by him. I, <laughs> I looked it up because I bought the book right when it came out, and it's a 40-year-old book. So I read this 40 years ago when I was 22 years old. But Jack Hayford said this. I got uh, two or three quotes from him. This is what he said. When people are accustomed to death as a lifestyle, real life becomes a violent option. It's upsetting. Nothing will mess up cemeteries like resurrections. Don't you love that? Now listen to this again. People become so accustomed to death as their lifestyle. I preached a sermon many years ago 
about the culture of death because there is a culture of death. Even among Christians, the culture of death is more about... The, the, the cross is talked about more than the resurrection is talked about, even though the Bible talks about the power not being in the cross, but the power being in the resurrection. Okay? So people are so accustomed to death as a lifestyle, real life becomes a violent option. We don't know what to do with this. And then he goes on to say, here's two or three more quotes here. The liar had sold his citizen, the liar being the devil, had sold his citizens on death and told them that's life. But now the order of disorder was dissolving. Think about that for a moment. Because here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying. People get so used to death as a lifestyle, to immorality as being the norm, that their normal, which is darkness, their normal, which is death, their normal, uh, their normal, which is disorder, but they call it order. So he's saying the order of disorder was dissolving and the entrance of God's order was disconcerting to them. And when you're used to living upside down, right side up seems wrong. So by Jason saying, by, by the guy saying that, that these people are coming to our town, they've turned the world upside down. Uh, you've heard me say it before, and I, I'm quoting Jack Hayford from 40 years ago. Jack Hayford basically saying, look, he's tur- they're turning things right side up. It's been upside down for way too long. It's been upside down for, for millenniums. And so we're, the, the disciples come along, the believers come along, they start turning things right side up. But to the world, it seems upside down. This is where we don't understand this. We're not used to this. It throws them into confusion. It seems like I'm getting to quote some of my great, great old preachers and authors this morning. But I want to share one more quote, one more uh, segment of a quote. A blog that I, that I stumbled on, a pastor I've never heard of, uh, lives in Washington State, actually in Bellingham. I stumbled on this, this, the blog of this young man, a young pastor in Bellingham, who was being very, very honest. And this is what he said. He said, I have the propensity to tweet only the things that won't cause me to lose followers. If you anger me, I'll usually excuse your behavior at great personal expense because I want you to like me. And this morning I said these exact words. I agree with that when actually I wasn't so sure I did. He's saying this, and he has a lot of followers. He's saying, look, he said, I, I admit I have this propensity to tweet only the things that won't cause me to lose followers. And then this is what he says next. I have grown so accustomed to being in a nice, socially acceptable and tolerant, behaving in a nice, socially acceptable and tolerant way, but there is a problem with that. When did Jesus call me to veil myself in congeniality to get people to like me? In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. He went on to say that, uh, he, he went on to say, he said, I've, I've learned uh, that, he, that he's learned to, the innocent as doves part. I've learned that part. I know that part. I'm good at that. I'm good at not rocking the boat. I'm good at keeping things on an even kill. I don't want to cross lines and offend people and hurt people and make people mad at me and, you know, throw things into confusion and turn things upside down and those kinds of things. I've learned that part. It's the shrewdest snake's part that I'm Struggling with, he goes on to say. Messages like the one 
I'm preaching this morning and, and, and uh, you know, stepping on toes and challenging you and challenging me. They're not very popular, <laughs> but they're necessary. They're important. You know, even as a pastor for 40, for nearly 40 years, I find myself wrestling with the temptation to only say the easy stuff, to only get up here and say things that I think you might want to hear. In other words, what you want, in, in other words, to be honest, and by, and by the way, there are plenty of ministers out there doing that sort of thing, and their churches are big and their churches are very popular. But in reality, let's ask ourselves the question, and I'm not pointing, I will not name names, but I'm just saying that those pastors are not turning the world upside down. Or should I say right side up? The Bible says this, for a time will come, for the time will come, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. In Isaiah, God warns of something similar. He says, for they, uh, for the children, for they, well, I messed up here. The children are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Audiences want to hear. I mean, if I got up here and I was a comedian this morning, which I've told you many times, I don't have the gift of comedy. But if I did that, you know, it would be appealing. People would, would be happy when they leave. And all of that. The message, by the way, at the very end of this says it this way. Tell us what makes us feel better. And again, there's plenty of that out there if you want it. There's plenty of that out there if you want it. But I want to be honest with Scripture this morning, and I want to be honest with you. Some people respond to the pastor as though, the words were his and not the words of the Lord. Sometimes when I preach, you know, people, if people get upset with me, and I, I realize some, some of, you know, I'm not always just quoting scripture. I'm actually giving my opinion and, and giving my, you my belief and breaking down words and th- those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of what I say is me, but we have to understand, and, and I have the faith when I stand here this morning that I've been walking with the Lord long enough and been pastoring long enough that I know God takes my feeble words and He uses them, and they are imparted by the Holy Spirit. not saying everything I say is, thus saith the Lord. But I will say this, that somehow, even when it's not this, thus say the Lord, God uses it to minister to people. Paul said this, don't receive my words as, as the words of man, but as it truly is the words of God. Now, I said all that to say this. Some people respond to the pastor as though his words were his own and not the words of the Lord. I have actually had people yell at me before as I was quoting a scripture. You don't really believe that? Well, yes, I do, because it's in the Bible. I've actually had, I can, I could name names and I could mark places on the floor where people have pointed a finger in my face and, you know, said, you know, how dare you? Believe that because I quoted a scripture, you know, not quoted Michael Derringer. 
I'm just the messenger, as they say. And as they say, don't shoot the messenger. It's like, it's like don't undertip the waitress because your food was undercooked. It wasn't her fault. She didn't cook it. You know? So sometimes it's important to share these kinds of messages because it's very, very challenging to our um, apathy and our lackadaisicalness, our, you know, being mediocre. And I don't want that. Especially after a song that we just sang in the presence of the Lord being here. How can you sing that and then just go off, you know, mediocre and, and just... Oh, okay. That was, that was fun. That's something to, to, you know, Facebook about or something like that. And not, and not somehow change you and challenge you to want to be the kind of Christian that God is calling us to be. If what I'm saying is the truth and it is the word of the Lord, then we would all do well to take heed to it and listen to it as God warns us in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to by those who heard. This is what he's saying. Listen, if, if you don't listen, if you, if the, if the message that was brought by angels was so important that they needed to take heed to it or they would be, uh, they would be, uh, uh, scolded for it or punished for it, how much more when it's the word of the Lord? So let's go back to the early church. I'm going to kind of close here. I think, yeah, I'm getting. Close to the close here. What is it that changed the early church? What made the difference? From the Gospels to the book of Acts, you know, you have these guys in the New Testament, in the Gospels that barely knew how to, I was going to say tie their shoes, they didn't have shoelaces. But, but barely knew up from down. They, they didn't theologically, they didn't have a spiritual understanding. They didn't have a lot of spiritual knowledge. They were always saying the wrong things. They always doing the wrong things, not knowing what to say or what, or what not to do. It's like those YouTubes that you see that have the big flashing word failed on there. You could kind of say that that's true of the disciples and the gospels. And then all of a sudden in the book of Acts, it's like, who are these people? Who are these disciples? Suddenly in the, in the book of Acts, they're powerful men, you know, healing people and saying things and 3,000 people getting saved and preaching and 5,000 people getting saved. And what happened to these guys that couldn't figure things out in the gospels? What made the difference? Before Jesus' resurrection, they were pretty much like, uh, well, like us. And then all of a sudden, they were a force to be reckoned with. Now, I realize that the most obvious answer was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that is certainly true, and that is a huge, huge part of this. And I don't want to make light of that. But this morning, I want to focus on something a little bit different. I want to focus on something that I think was a huge difference in their life than that we don't have in the average Christian today, and that is 
I'll tell you next week. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, as of last night, I was going to end there and say that. And I thought, I can't do that to them. I've been doing that to them too much lately. I'll tell you this, but it's an introduction to next week, okay? I believe what made a difference between the believer in the book of Acts and the believer that we have today is they knew who they were because they knew who he was. That's huge, and it's something I believe is missing from the understanding of the average Christian today. Now, part of this is from my experience of 39 years in the ministry and from observations from from nearly 50 years as a Christian. We just don't know who we are and what we have. My plan is to share with you what the Scriptures teach about this over the next weeks. <laughs> I don't know. And I hope you stay with me. I was talking with someone, and, and I'll share this in, in more detail a little bit later. But I was talking with someone recently over the phone. And it's one of the things that I saw was his answer. You know, he he was just distraught about something, and, and we we spent a long time on the phone. And I realized that though this man had grown up in a Christian home, his dad was in the ministry, that he really didn't know who he was. And that was the that was what was destroying him. We talked about that for a long time and I gave him some uh instruction and some ideas and some things I told him would help. And uh but that's just one incident, but but it's it can be multiplied many, many times as I talk with people and, and they're defeated and they live defeated lives. They live lives of mediocrity and they're not what they ought to be. You know, and it's because we just don't know who we are. I don't want to talk to you about that in the next few weeks. Let me pray.